invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus 34. Thirty-fourth chapter of Exodus. The Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount. Neither let the flocks nor herds feed before the mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up into the mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the table descended... In the, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood up and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will be and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us from thine inheritance. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people, and I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. For it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou shalt eat of his sacrifice. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. The feast of unleavened bread thou shalt keep. 
Seven days thou shalt eat unleavened bread, as I commanded thee in the time of the month Ahab. For in the month of Ahab thou camest out from Egypt. All that openeth the matrix is mine, and every firstling among thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then thou shalt break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. Six days thou shalt work, but in the seventh day thou shalt rest, shalt rest. In earing time and in harvest thou shalt rest, and thou shalt observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Thrice in the year shall all men, children, appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders, neither shall my man, any man, desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven, neither shall the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover over be left until the morning. The first of the first fruits of the land thou shalt bring unto the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see a kid in his mother's milk. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the mount, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, tables of testimony, in Moses' hand when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them, and afterward all the children of Israel came nigh. And he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak until he went in to speak with him. Exodus 34. Brother Wyatt has asked that we read together this morning 
from the sixth chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 6. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, and Stephen, being, and Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat at the, in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. It seems as we look here in Acts chapter 6, I don't seem that way, but it is, I guess it would be a better way to say it, there is a transition taking place. We find another stopping point where there's two chapters that take a specific, the acts of a specific character and expand on that somewhat. So that the writer can express to the reader, you and I, in a sense what we read about in Exodus, there in the Old Testament we find that word and we find it other places, but that the tenor or the expression or the purpose, the tenor of the church. As we continue our journey in Acts, there'll be a pause here for probably at least two messages, depending on the kind of the, I guess, the pull of the Spirit. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're going to look at chapter 6 today. The title of the message is Stephanos. Earning the victor's crown. Earning the victor's crown. We'll be singing hymn number 135.
Well, we'll get into the... The reason we titled this message, Earning the Victor's Crown, Stephanos, in just a little while, I believe it will make sense to you. Remember in the last message, in chapter 5, we had talked about Ananias and Sapphira. Some things that come out of that, as we find the apostles doing their work, spreading the gospel, and we find the twelve primarily being the ones that are exercising in the ministry. We find a lot of excitement. We read about earlier the speaking in tongues or speaking in front of others so other people can hear in their language. We find amazing action. We find those amazing actions doing stimulating people in different ways. We found Barnabas, the compassionate, loving disciple, responding from his landholdings, with his landholdings, and giving. We find Ananias and Sapphira responding and doing something, covering up, and then we find and lying, putting on a mask in a sense, but wanting the blessing. As we go back behind this, and we'll find it as we go forward, I just want to repeat a few things. You know, we find powerful prayer coupled with Christian action. Important to remember, powerful prayer coupled with Christian action. Another way for that couple is a stimuli, bringing in to action. I've used the word multiple times, and I like it. There is a, dy- a dynamic Christianity is based upon the power of God, connected to God through His Spirit and through communication, which is prayer with God. We find a cycle happening. We find the witness cycle. Action to reaction to attraction. We find action of the apostles, action of the believers, stimulating a reaction to those against God, against the plan of God, filled with pride and jealousy, you will find. And that reaction brings attraction to the gospel. And so we have to be willing as believers to accept this paradigm. This I call it the witness cycle. Action to reaction to attraction to action to reaction to attraction. That's how the gospel spread. And we could find an injunction throughout, and I won't go to them, but in, 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 the, in the book of Acts, as Luke writes, we find that he mentions, and the church multiplied, and the number of the disciples was X, and the church grew. And it's interesting to note that every time that he mentions that injunction, something great is going to happen. Just another cute, or not cute, but a unique writing characteristic uh, that stimulates the reader as you would allow the uh, writer Luke by the power of the Holy Spirit to stimulate our Christian enthusiasm. And that is to do something not just to give kind of excitement or an emotion, but it's to give us depth in our purpose. 
And that's why we pray today that, there, that we leave this room with commitment, understanding there is a depth based upon God, and we have a purpose, and that is to be deep in Him. We're calling that earning the victor's crown. You know, by the power of God, we can find it here, and I repeat this coming up closer here in Acts 5, we find the uh, the church was unified, the church magnified, and the church multiplied. And through that, God was glorified. Just going to go through quickly the nine points of our last message. There's two that die because of a lie. There is a lovely front to conceal a sin. Now, we can take this and apply it to ourselves. A new phase of salvation always brings, or seems to always bring judgment for sin from within. So when God expresses himself, it seems connected with that is a reaction to, and the devil is at work, and something I use the example, if you remember, of Nadab and Abihu and Achan and Joshua. It's important to remember that Christians, so-called, can be motivated by Satan. It's called manipulation, pride, lie, hypocrisy. But we live with that reality. It can happen to you. It can happen to I. It can happen to anyone that says the name of Jesus. It can be very deceptive. True giving is lusted after. We talked about that true giving is lusted after. You can see a little bit of that played out here in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but with Ananias and Sapphira, looking back, and it kind of follows right after uh, Barnabas' giving, but they had desired to give, and it's, and, it's, and it's for the purpose motivated by a subtle self-glory. Sin is motivated by pride. We covered that last time a little bit. I just want you to keep that in mind as we think of characters here in Acts. Christians can fall or fail the church, the ecclesia, the called out, the unit. Remember, we can fail. We should come before our God as we desire to give him glory with somewhat of a fear, a depredation, a, uh, a, uh, I want to say a, a, a shaking, a crying in a sense. Not that we fear God but in a sense of the, of the fleshly fear, but we fear his abundance, his power, his knowledge. And that does something when there's a godly reverence there is a godly respect and there is a godly, a, a, a God will that comes forth. We find this cycle here in uh, Acts 5 continuing that um, um, you find the, the apostles back in prison again. Remember this cycle um, regarding um, action to reaction? When there is boldness, when there's presentation of truth, we see it in Jesus' life, we see it in the apostles' life, we see it in the disciples' life, and we see it over and over. It's, it's a 
one of the great um, uh, center points of of the epistles is this reaction, and then it brings attraction. Worldly wisdom equals peace for the sacrifice of truth. If you remember, we talked just a little bit about Gamaliel and the worldly wisdom that he had. And the desire for peace. But there was a sacrifice of truth. This crown, that's the title. I want to consider for a moment, we can look here in verse the first part and the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen or Stephen a man full of faith and they chose Stephen you know what the meaning of Stephen is it's the victor's crown We will get to this. Well, let's just go here for a second. Let's go back before we sing. Go back to Revelations um, 2 and 10. We know the context here is in in the book of Revelation where John is, Jesus is a, prophesying or teaching to the church. I mean, John write it down and document it in Logos form. We find in this, we find in verse 10, fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I shall give thee a victor's crown. Now, there's two crowns referenced in the New Testament. And in the Greek language, in Latin, we have primarily the Latin form is diadem. That's the royal crown. And we have, most generally here in the New Testament, we have Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. Now, a royal crown is a crown that is inherited. One that is by right of blood, in a sense. You would think of the king or the queen of England. When they place the crown on their head, they don't really even have to deserve it by their actions. It's placed on their head. They are given recognition because they are of royalty. And they're the next in line for kingship. That's the royal crown. Now, there is a royal crown for Christianity, but I think it's interesting that in the New Testament, I don't find the Christian being referenced with the diadem crown. Didn't go very deep in my study, but I thought it was interesting, most generally, Stephanos is used. That's the victor's crown. That's the crown that is placed on the head of the one that wins the race. Let us run with patience 
the race which is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And when we win that race, there is a crown put on our head. And that's what we find here with Stephen. There was a crown put on his head. His Actually, his name was even named that, of a victor's crown, Stephanos. We'll study or look into that in just a little bit as well. Go into the New Testament just for a moment, and we can find here in Philippians 4, as Paul writes, We'll use Paul and Peter. We could go other places in that. But we will not, for time's sake, go to um, Philippians 4, 1. Paul uses this, Stephanos. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and victor's crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. We can see somewhat of the personality and action of of Stephen in this action chapter of chapter 6. Go over to Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And there's other places we could go, but I'm just taking two of the writers of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a victor's crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now the victor's crown of glory comes from the one that has finished the race faithfully, like is referenced in Revelation 2. It is is used within that context. Faithful unto the end. And we find that with Stephen, he was faithful to the end. It's interesting he had such a short ministry. But it's amazing how God used Stephen, Stephen. If you want to put the the Greek connotation to it, we would say Stephen. But you would find, you find that God used him in an amazing way. And there was a, a path that was laid out and, is, and, and Luke, somewhat, as he writes, is stimulating the reader and as he expresses what is happening and what goes on. We'll get into some of those amazing connections. I've already tried to do that in the past as we think about how there was a writing and then, you know, we just found it here in chapter 5 where Barnabas was introduced. And then we find Stephen introduced here in chapter 6. And we see what Barnabas did and what that stimulated. And then we find in chapter... Um, six, coming from a, quote, potential church problem, or rather a church problem, we find something happen. We find a Stephen coming out of the woodwork, in a sense. Was called in there, but we had given, been given some definition. We're going to look into that for a moment. And then we go on, and you can find as that steps forward, we find here mentioned, in, at the end of chapter 7, which we're not going to go there, but we find um, um, a, something connected. And you can find it back here in chapter 6 also, um, Saul, known as Paul, and his connection. We find him here in verse 58 of chapter 7. 
the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. An amazing connection. And as, as, as we find this unfolding, and we find the God working as he gives the victor's crown, but there is something that happens for those that receive the victor's crown, and that's why we said earning the victor's crown. So if we're going to have the victor's crown, there is an earning period. It's not that of works, but it's that of the power of God working in me. And it's the power of God working in you and in the church. Let us not forget that. 135. Away, dark thoughts. Awake my joy. Awake my glory, sing. Sing songs to celebrate the birth of Jacob's God and King. Go over to Revelation chapter 12. Just a couple verses, three verses here I want us to quickly look at. It's interesting to note, I'm just, just because of this little starting study on, on crown, diadem, and Stephanos, diadema and Stephanos. Here in chapter 12, we find diadem used in verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. So we find here an inherited crown, the royal crown, crown upon his head. It's interesting, represents Satan. So God had, I think with that we can find that, we just see into that God in this had a predetermined, I think with the diadem somewhat, there's a predetermined, a predestinated plan God is in, had in mind, and it kind of goes along with the use of that royal. Now, can it be used in the positive sense? Yes. Before we go there, I want you to go over to chapter 13, and we can find again in verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, referring back, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon the, his heads the name of blasphemy. Satan was predetermined as he was cast out of heaven, and we find him representing that. But you can go on over and look in Revelation 19, in verse 12. Start at verse 11, so we can just get the context and we'll move on. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And his, in, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And his name was called the Word of God. So we find here this referring to, this diadema here, referred to Jesus. Jesus kind of rep- shows, expresses his royal crown, his royal place, in the Trinity, or in the, with, the, with God, the Father, and his purposes, as he comes and ministers back his purpose and fulfilling. But he had this diadem crown 
on his head. Let's go back now to Acts. I want us to consider. And look at these first four verses. We find here a basis for what we would call a tradition, in which we don't call a tradition, but a scriptural basis. But the tradition is in how it looks in different church settings. You'll find most active churches will have what they call deacons. And it basically comes from this segment of scripture. Now it's, um, but we want to look at this and see really what is happening and what, how things worked out and what stimulated this unique situation in the church. You know, we find this need that comes. The first thing I want us to think about is just, oh, there's another Greek word that I want us to consider is diakonia. And you can look here, it's, it's used three times in these four verses. The first one is at the end of chapter six, of chapter, of verse one. And we find, and we'll explain this a little bit later, but I just want to cover here first this call to serve. As this diakonia, diakonio is literal in our language, like it says right here in this ministration, serving, and in ministry. It's interesting here in the first verse 1, we find it as a noun. Diakonia. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because of their widows were neglected in the daily ministering or in the daily ministration. So we find this word diaconia being used as in the daily, in the ministry or in the serving. And then we find the verb in action as the, as the disciples go on. And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God in diaconio tables. Serve tables. This is the verb. It's the action. So there is a table serving that was going on. And so we find that this is referenced back as action. Then we go back again in verse 4. We find the noun coming back again as that they look at their own position in, the, in daily responsibilities in verse 1. Action, and what was missing is the daily responsibilities being fulfilled through table of, of serving tables. And then we find them saying we have, we'll give ourselves that we may give ourselves so there was a problem but we, um, that there was a, in this ministry of the word, that the apostles had, 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 had the burden of filling their apostleship, expressing the logos, preaching the word. And as the church had grown, as it went through these different times, we can go back and see, as there was this growing happened, and it was basically tucked in at Jerusalem, there was a lot of energy and a lot of dynamics and a lot of diversity. And so there's an expression here of what happened here at Jerusalem. Let's go back and look at what was really happening 
in verse 1, as we think of, of there was a need for serving. And so you can really find, as we would go through this, just keep in mind as we think here of, of the deacon part, the deacon is a minister or an assistant. Now, in the German Baptist faith, we would have the deacon has some defined responsibilities. It doesn't, it's not limited to, but basically they're ministering, and you can see it here within the context, that they are ministers, apostles, or preachers, assistants. Because there's a greater need. And then that trickles down that we all are, in a sense, diaconia, doing the diaconio, the verb, the action of serving. And here in specific, it is brought up showing how the church is to work. And so we see, as there was, the church was growing, there was, you know, unique dynamics. And we, and, and Luke brings up a few of those when he shows of the murmurings or the disappointment or the challenge of the Grecians against the Hebrews. So we had two different people groups that were both Jew. But we find the, it says here the Grecians against the Hebrews. Now the Hebrews would have been ones that would have been born and grown up in the land and would have known Arabic and Hebrew. So this is just one point, but there's other dynamics that go into that as we think of diversity in the church and we think of different gifts, but God brings all this together and this mass of conversion and belief in Jesus Christ as the power of the Holy Spirit was going out, it was, there was a, some growing tensions happening. It's a natural thing within human response to a call. It can happen in the church. It happens in the world as well. It, it, it's just a basic fact of life. But the Grecians would have primarily only spoken Greek. And so that there was a division between them. So there was different characteristics. So whether, how much, whether there was jealousies between the Hebrew and the Greek Jew, I don't know. But you can kind of get some inference that there was something that the Grecian widows, it says here, their widows, which is talking about the primary subject of the sentence, which was the Grecians, widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So as there was a daily serving that went on for the survival of the believers, the Jewish believer, the many that were together, and remember, as we kind of just not wanting to go too far forward, we're looking at this through the eyes or the window of chapter 6 of where we are, and we don't want to jump too far forward because we kind of know the whole story. But to get the, get, uh, get the uh, jest and get the, the fullest amount, we're trying to hold back at jumping too far forward. But we know that as the church was growing, and it was kept this energy and, thing, and, and this excitement, we know along with that there was a great giving. Remember Barnabas. Remember the church had all things back in chapter 2, all things in common. And they had unity. And they were a giving. But that did something. And I've often wondered as I read back here, and you see this giving, who was administering... Who was diaconioing the, the, the funds and the resources that were given, whether it was lands or whether it was money, but there was a reason for it. It wasn't just building up a big checking account. The church at Jerusalem was under persecution, and the people were called 
were in a sense starting in, um, to lose their jobs, didn't have, were sacrificing, were giving, so there was greater needs. And so we find that here the, uh, the Grecians' widows were being neglected. They were being overlooked. So there was a potential of jealousy uh, um, and testing that was coming. But it's, it's keep in mind that God was working. Remember, our basic principle of, of, of the working of God is um, that social dynamics brings social division. Now, as this was brought to the attention of the apostles, something else to note, because we we're kind of bringing in character, character study within, Remember back here in uh, chapter 1, there was an election of, or of a, a casting of lots, I believe it was, for two, of, of two, and Matthias was chosen of, of the twelve. And just to, um, to kind of see the depth of what was happening, notice here in, in verse 2, then the twelve, because there's a, there's a, a belief, or a, 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 and just a thing of interest, it's not a doctrinal thing, but there is a a uh, understanding that really Matthias shouldn't have been elected or shouldn't have been part of the apostles because uh, Paul was that. But, um, but notice here in chapter 6, verse 2, there's a reference to the 12. Matthias would have been one of those. So we find him active in working or administering this idea or this, this uh, solution to a problem that the church was going to be divided. Now notice there was a... Uh, a desire, a action was taken, there was humility expressed within the, the apostles because they had, there was a problem coming and they could smell it, but they didn't sit back and wait. They did something about it. And the problem was this. Success. People were responding. There was church growth. There was amazing things happening as God worked. Now, I want us to think a little bit about success and what happens with it. Because all of us, whether it's in our business, in our families, in our churches, in our social world, when we get to the spot that we believe we're successful, we are exposed. We have a choice to make when we experience success. Action or no action. The temptation is the status quo. We have, in a sense, got our thumbs under our suspenders. We have obtained. We have succeeded. We are where we are supposed to be. Let us enjoy it right now. The apostles could have done that. You know, this would have somewhat, it was the Holy Spirit working because the temptation would be for them to kind of say, you know, we're going to keep going. You just work it out. But they knew in their calling they had a responsibility. And the responsibility took a humility of them accepting that maybe they had overlooked this a little bit. Maybe they should have jumped on this sooner. But God brought it up and they moved on it. To me, that's just so amazing because you can see it in the cycle of business. Many times 
as a business becomes profitable and 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 has a good product line and has a lot of uh, when you say um, success stories, there is a flattening that takes place. There's this saying in business, and I believe it applies across multiple lines other than just business, um, that when you, uh, if you're not growing, you're dying. Now, I don't mean we just necessarily have to grow in numbers, but can we grow in dynamics and depth and product line or whatever it might be? So we just don't want to promote growth, but there is, that just gives us the, uh, idea or the thoughts or the stimulates us to realize that there must be action taken with growth or with success. I like the saying that success equals last success equals last year's successful nest from which the birds have flown. Success equals last year's nest in which the birds have flown. That means when you get to the level of your idea of success, you've already lost it. So we need to be careful. There must be humility. I guess I'll just stop for a second. It wasn't in my notes. But I feel like, I don't say I feel like it, but we have somewhat sense have experienced somewhat of a success in this congregation. And if we sit back on our haunches and glorify in that and stimulate in action, we will have problems. It might be a church split. It might be a wave of people leave. It might be worldliness. Why does that happen in a church? Why does that happen? Because we are in a battle... To win the victor's crown, that's why. And there is a battle going on against Satan. And if we don't accept that, we've already lost the battle. Because there is tension, there is, is uh, persecution that is to take place. And so we must be careful as we would consider where we are in life, whether business, whether our families. You know, it's just the church and a family is one to only one generation from failure with our children and with our children's children, with the children in this congregation. Now, three things that I want us to consider as we look here in these four verses that there was this stimulation that went on as they've seen this need, and we've, you know, we've got the, the Grecian and we've got the, got the Hebrew, and they seen that there was a need. The reason that we should we should leave tables and serve and leave the word and serve tables. Now let's just stop right here on this second verse. This tables. Now one way that we would apply that today, and it may and it's all fits, but table represents a place where the word is preached, where the people are served, where money is exchanged, where money is loaned and received and managed where food is distributed, all of those fall under that word table. And so we find that there was greatness. So you could see within the context 
of Acts that the word needed to be spread and was being spread by the apostles. At the same time, there was many needs. The church was growing. At the same time, there was money at the hand that must be distributed fairly, equally, for the needs that were at hand. And that took discernment. And somehow the, the apostles were, were somehow managing and advising that. kind of goes back to how um, Moses' father told him, you know, you need to go up with this plan and do this and this and this. He, he was seeing success or seeing a gifted man being wore out. And, so, and I think the, the apostles were somewhat sensing the same thing as what brought them forward. So that w- there was a characteristic that is important that we understand that came out that we see with the apostles in their exercise. One, that they approached this problem with humility. And don't say here that they admitted wrongdoing, or wrong, but they had admitted that they needed to have some change. Something needed to happen, because you're right, there was some. Ah, we could go research it out. There was a need. Another was that they had a vision. Along with vision is purpose. What is your purpose? What is mine? But they, they demonstrated, the apostles demonstrated they had a vision. They had a, a vision for further church growth and the spreading of the word, no matter what was happening in the society around, no matter how much persecution there was or how much jailings or beating or martyrism. Or martyrism. They were moving forward, and so they acted upon it, so that they could do something. So they exercised on the vision, and the vision wasn't based upon the flesh. The vision was based upon the logos, the word of God, the spreading of the word. The power of the Holy Spirit is what their vision was based upon. It wasn't of themselves, and they was willing to expose themselves with that truth. They was willing, and then it goes back, kind of this full circle, back to humility and to vision, but they was willing to delegate and to trust. They were willing to expose themselves. Now, anytime we make decisions in business or in life with groups of people and in the church, when we make decisions based upon people and personality and demands of society, whatever it is, we become exposed. But one of the greatest things that happens to leadership, whether it's in the home, or in the church, or business, or in communities, is fear that leads to inaction. Even if you make a few mistakes, it's better to move and know that there's a way to solve those than to settle back. But I think it's interesting that they were willing to expose themselves and delegate to the seven and to trust. So we find here the call to serve. First we just considered the Stephanos, the crown, is the first thing we consider, and then we have the call to serve. There is a calling, and we find this unique calling of the of the deacon, of the diaconia. Now we want to look for a moment at the dynamics of the called in the second part of verse 6 and 5. 
It's a couple points I want to make here. I can't make all of the points. It's a, it's a fun study. But uh, just for time's sake, I'm just going to hit on a few. In verse 5 we find, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose. Now notice, remember there was a delegation and there was trust. And the whole multitude chose. And we'll get to this man a little bit later, but we can see here that they chose Stephen. A man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. There's a little extra line after Stephen, because he's the next character in the, in the study. He's starting to come out and going to blossom for just a little bit, and then receive the crown. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. But we can find here some of these, just a, a little bit of... Uh, some dynamics of these that were called, we find Stephen. He was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And we find out what happened with him as hands was laid on him. And he fulfilled his purpose. It seems like I read in my Bible here in the Thompson, which is not to even be intended as a commentary, but anybody that writes more than the Word of God or takes away from the Word of God is becoming a commentary on the Word of God. And it's interesting to note back in my Thompson chain reference, it mentions that um, Stephen overstepped his bounds as a deacon. I don't believe that. He fulfilled his bounds, and he exercised by the power of God, and that brought him past the bounds of the present to the glory of God. God had a purpose in his energy, in his zeal, in his excitement, in his enthusiasm, in, his dyna- in the dynamics of his understanding of his, and the presentation of his experience as a Hebrew. And it did something. We find that Stephen is, at, is the focus here in chapter 6 now and in chapter 7. And, and, and Luke's characteristic of writing is, we find the second character mentioned in the list. I don't think that's without purpose. We notice, who was it? It was Philip, another deacon that could have extra went outside of his bounds of serving table. But he didn't. What happens after chapter 7? We find a movement of the church, remember the church is huddled in, in a sense, or, or growing and expanding and pushing out the balloon of the dynamics of the church at Jerusalem. The hill of Jerusalem is, what do you say, bubbling over with Jesus. That's a dangerous thing. And as it bubble, bubbles over with Jesus, and the lovers of Jesus, the responders to the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has a plan in mind. And Stephen, in his short couple-day ministry, maybe months, we don't know exactly, but we just read here in his two-chapter ministry, we find him stimulating the church to move out. We find in chapter 8, all of a sudden, Philip comes out and kind of replaces, or not assists, replaces, but fulfills his gift. And where do you find him? In Samaria. 
There's a spreading that was going on, and God had a plan. He went to the Samaritans, which were half Jew, and were influenced by the land and its traditions, had been, and there was a jealousy against them uh, between the, the, uh, the true blood Jew because of history, and that was held on to, and they were disrespected. But he went out of love to the Samaritans. And then he also, God took him down to what? To the eunuch, heading home, back to Africa. Isn't that amazing? We find here, in, just in, in one, we find Philip then coming out and doing his purpose. But that persecution and that work then of, of, uh, of Philip stimulated the apostles to get up and go down and find out what's going on at Samaria. You see it in chapter 8. But then also, it went out way past and went to Africa. So we find that there's something happening. Philip didn't stop and say, are you a Jew? He probably was. Of the disbursement, the eunuch. But that made him, because he was carrying, maybe he was a proselyte, but he was carrying the book of Isaiah and reading it. But to me, that's just so exciting to see that God is taking this. Now the church is getting persecuted, and so then he steps out and says, you know, it's okay to go out there. And all of a sudden we find that the church moves out. Not just the apostles, but the deacons. And not only the deacons, but the, all of the believers, the church as a whole. Persecution comes. It's more than they can stand. And that's one thing that God always uses is economies, political and financial, to move his people. It's amazing how he works through all of that. And also it's interesting to note, there in the last, another dynamic is Nicholas. So we have basically six that were Hebrew, and one, Nicholas, was a proselyte of Antioch. I don't know how it all fit together, but Antioch became the center point of Christianity. Where Paul went, it's where we find the manuscripts, future on in history. They wanted to get the pure manuscripts. The generations after this, where did they go? They went to Antioch. It's interesting. If you want to get the impure manuscripts, go to Alexandria. And we find that here in this chapter. Just interesting to note. I think it's just, so we find the center of the church in a sense, God, through persecution, and even I think, I think um, Nicholas was, uh, was involved in that, that it brought the people, as God was reaching out, brought them out into a natural, in a, in a, in a logical path to an end to his honor and to his glory and to fulfill his purpose. The dynamics of the call. Now we want to consider the determined call. Look back at verse 3. You can find this name we've already talked about, this name of Stephen. I want to think about this determined call as we read here in verse, um, in chapter, in verse 3. Um, men of, men of, seven men, honest, of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this matter. So I want to just ask a question. And I want to get something for us all to consider. And the question is this. 
Why and how did Stephen's parents choose Stephen in, in, as they lived and coordinated their life with God, the determiner of destiny? So how and why did Stephen's parents choose Stephen as his name? I think it's something that's important for us to consider. I think it's something important to make us, to, for us to realize that God is in control. And as things unfold in our life, we would pray that we are such in the Holy Spirit that the decisions we make are of God's purposes. Now, the, the, the name does not determine your destiny. But I believe names rightly placed can expose your destiny. Not always. Now, if your parents name you something that's of a, of a noble calling in a sense, not that that's not a good name, but God has another purpose in it. I'm saying that is what we have to do. We need to go and take every name and go into a sort of scriptural vision and know this vision is for this child and this for this. We'll leave that to God. But I, I think what it shows here is this, this how and why, is that God steers circumstances to his glory. And if we are going to participate in that, it must be done without pride, in humility, and trusting in him. The determined call of Stephen, interesting note about his name, but notice in verse 3 and in verse 10, it says here that he was full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And notice what this full of Holy Ghost and wisdom did in verse, I mean, that's in, um, in verse 3, but down here in verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So here was the man that was speaking, stepping out and speaking that they couldn't resist. So we find he had a complete fullness. And I want us to remember that, that there was a fullness of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. The basis of, Holy, of wisdom is the Holy Spirit for the Christian. And that connects and ties in with the Word of God. Consider and keep that in mind as we even challenge and we think of, of, of names and families and family purposes, as we would consider and desire fullness within our children, keep in mind our responsibility to be in the Spirit and apply wisdom and to teach the Word of God. Paramount. We find that coming out with Timothy later on in Acts. We also find here that there was this fullness and there was this faith in, the, in, 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 verse, in verse 5. And, pleased the whole, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. Now, this faith was one that he believed in God and trusted God, and it showed forth in his life. I believe all those men had it, but this one was mentioned early on because I believe this faith was tested. And thus, Stephen received his crown of glory, his Stephanos, because of his faith. Because he goes right on, and it shows and demonstrates as we go forward, we can see what happens with this faith in just a moment. We find in verse 8, 
that there was also power. And that ties in with the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's mentioned here, and look at it. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles. And it's interesting that that miracle giving was passed on here to Stephen for a purpose, for a moment, for a time. But how long was this? I don't know, but it's pretty short-lived. But it stimulated his actions and his ministry stimulated his, he needed to go. Put to death, just like they did John the Baptist, just like they did to, uh, to Jesus. And now we find the pattern repeated again with the first martyr in the church, Stephen. This power is dunamis, which is, from the word we use, dynamic, or engine. Or it's something, it's, it's um, energy in action. It's the verb. It's producing something. There is kinetic, which is waiting and has potential, and there is the dynamic. It's in action. And so we find here that this um, dunamis, this, he was a man of power. He was letting the works of God work in his life to an amazing end. We find this also used, this dunamis, in ability, in abundance, has meaning, it's might, it's mighty, and it has its work. It's all words that's used in the New Testament. So we find Stephen in chapter in verses nine and ten at the place of potential tension or action. It was a place of worship, but he was there. There's something, some things that's interesting. We find him in a place of action. And I just want us to think about that as we live life, as we think of this crown, the victor's crown, and fulfilling our purpose, we will be found in the place of action. That place of action for the mother and the father is in the home. The place of action in the church. There's a place of action you're calling in the church. And your purpose is in life. But we found Stephen right there in the middle of something he was familiar with, the synagogue. In verse 9 and 10, it was, the, the synagogue was a place of zeal. It was a place of worship. It was a diverse connection to the law. It's where they came to worship. It was basically the Old Testament church. It's not, as the synagogue unfolds, it's the fruit of uh, really the... Uh, of the Babylonian, as the children of Israel came back from the Babylonian captivity, or in Babylon, they started this concept and had places of worship that were not at the temple. And so that was expanded upon as they came back and rebuilt the temple. And that was expanded further after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman Empire. But we find here that, we find that, um, uh, just some interesting points, as Stephen would have been at the synagogue, you know, there's, there was different types of synagogues, or they called them um, quarters. They're, they're just different places. have been like churches with a different personality, and our German Baptist setting could be different districts. had just a little bit different dynamics. And it was brought about by larger effects of society, or whatever that might be. They were kind of drawn together in a sense. It could really even be different denominations that are living in the truth in our setting today. But we find um, Stephen going and preaching in 
the synagogue. And it's interesting, in this synagogue, I just want to look at a few, few things of interest as he talks here. And then this speech stimulates his, his capture and his defense and his death. So we find here the synagogue of, and it's all one synagogue, the Libertines. The Libertines were a group of people that were, had been freed in the Roman Empire of Jews. They had been freed from their bondage, brought into bondage for, from war, or, um, or they were brought into bondage, and then they were either bought out of or given their freedom back. And they were called Libertines. So they were a new set of people, a unique set of people with a unique set of characteristics that brought them, and so they had, they were here, and this, this synagogue was known for them. The other one was the Cyrenians, and the other was the Alexandrians, those out of the city of Alexandria in northern Africa, that I already briefly mentioned, and of them of Sicilia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, it's interesting to note that it's possible that Stephen would have been of Sicilia, uh, uh, and remember, where was Paul from? Tarsus of Sicilia. So it's interesting to know, and, and Stephen would have been a younger man, Paul would have been, or was, uh, Paul would have been the younger man, and Stephen would have been a little bit older, probably so, because he referenced him as a young man, over here in chapter 7. But it's possible that Paul would have known Stephen, and Paul would have seen and debated with him, or heard his doctrine, and had noted his character prior maybe to conversion and after conversion. Now, Stephen could have stimulated, if that is so, probably so, Stephen could have stimulated some passion of jealousy and frustration in Apostle Paul. And so when Apostle Paul was standing there over here in uh, in verse 58, there's a lot more to it than just a young man's seat whose name was Saul. It's possible that Paul wanted him to die, but he was too young and maybe a little bit too much of a weakling yet to be one out there, but he was supporting it because he seen this man as a dangerous man just like the Jewish leaders did of the day, which Paul was being trained to be one of those. So it's just interesting we can see how this, um, this connection between Steve, possibly this connection between Stephen and... but. But the point here is this. Stephen was found in the place of action. And if you want to be spreading the gospel, be found in action. Be where the test is. Be where the need is. We find in verses 11 through 14 that the works of the devil and the flesh in the name of religion couple things to remember. Notice that there was a, there was a collaboration. Unto deception. So there was, and this is a, almost verbatim for the style that the Jews used against Jesus. Then they suborned men, pulled men together that was going to, which said, we have heard him speak. So they start bringing blasphemous words against Moses. There's, there's, there's a stimulation of passion which brings about 
a um, uh, a uh, an atmosphere that needed to happen to get this man out of the way, just like with Jesus. So there was this collaborating deception. This is the works of the flesh in the name of religion. They're stirred up with a goal of death. You know, false religion and those that are wrong, that are say they are not, that are deceived, will do whatever they have to to keep their path moving in the right in their direction. That is a source of martyrdom. That is a source of persecution and of testing that tests our faith and ultimately will give the true believer the Stephanos. They had misplaced truth and misunderstood. Look at verses 13 and 14. And they set up false witness which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered. So they're stimulating, basically taking truth and expanding it to excite the lost or the, or the uh, evil manipulators. Notice what had to happen also in this, and we think of this, the works of the flesh, as they were stirring up, something happened that in a sense it's, it's a jailing or a, a, bringing, a, a grabbing a hold of. And you find it here, in, in, in it's like it's happened suddenly, is kind of the connotation. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. So as he was preaching, he was exposed they took a hold of him and brought him before the council for the purpose of getting him out of the way. But they end. Verse 15. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now it's interesting to note, as he saw his face, but you can go over here and you find this as later on in chapter 7 as Stephen is preaching or he's going back really re, um, re, re, uh, restating history and where the leaders were off base. That's what fueled this. And, and as he was doing that, His face, and I like, I like it there. He's looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. That's why I went back and used Exodus 34, because as they, as those are with God, as we are with God, there's something happened. And here we found the glowing, an amazing glowing that was a witness. And, but yet it stimulated because there was a jealousy, a distaste, and a hate that for us to be able to glow for Jesus as Stephen, we must be in the Holy Spirit. We have to have the Holy Spirit for it to be true. We can put on a fake glow, but we must be bold in Christ. The light bulb must be tested. The Holy Spirit, our light, for those to see it glowing, we must be able to stand bold in the Lord so that others can see What's the purpose? Not me, not Stephen. 
not Mark, not Barnabas, not John, not Luke, not you, so that others can see the Lord. Let us remember, just like with Stephen, God has a plan and God has a purpose. Am I willing? Am I energized? Do I have the dynamics of God working in me to be where God wants me to be?